0: You're listening to The Boss Business of Surgery Series, Episode 45. Today, I'm talking with Amanda Hill. She's a healthcare lawyer and founder of Guard My Practice. She's here to help us navigate the complicated world of healthcare law. Enjoy the episode. If you missed the Stop Hating Clinic webinar, you can find the replay in The Boss Business of Surgery Series Facebook group. Otherwise, opt in at bosssurgery.com. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back to the show. I'm so excited about this guest, Amanda Hill. I first met her several months ago at the ACE conference. She is a healthcare lawyer, a huge advocate for doctors, and she creates these simple ways of explaining difficult things. And I mean, I didn't even know how much I didn't know until I started hearing her talking. So I'm really excited to hear all that she has to offer. And she's also going to tell us about a really exciting program that she has. that's going to be a benefit to so many of us. So Amanda Hill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. I've been looking forward to it all day. So tell us a little bit about yourself. You have a fascinating story about how you ended up. Because I mean, going back to this idea of we're just talking before we started recording, like, I don't know what kind of lawyers do what it's kind of like a cardiologist or a dermatologist, you know, versus a surgeon. I'm I'm sure that there's all different kinds. So how did you end off on this path?
1: Well, that's an interesting story. So when I went to law school, I was dead set on being a federal judge. I was I'm going to be a prosecutor. I want to be a federal judge. I want to bust crime and make sure that, you know, there's drugs off the street. And we ended up moving to Waco, Texas, which I know now everyone knows because of Joanna Gaines. It's very popular. There's you know, lots of flips of houses. But at the time, it was just this little town between Dallas and Austin. And we moved there because my husband at the time wanted to go to the law school there at Baylor. And I thought, where am I going to get a job in this little town? And so the only job that I could find that sounded reputable right, to my young, naive, just graduated from law school ears, was the Department of Veterans Affairs. And they had this position posted, which I was not qualified for. It was way beyond my grasp. I think you required 10 years of experience. But in all of my bravado, I applied for this job. I went to interview for it, I think just out of spite, Um, they didn't, obviously it wasn't qualified. I had paint on my arms from like just painting a new house because it was a newlywed and all that. And I think they just got a kick out of me and they hired me um, as an entry level lawyer. They said, oh, by the way, you're not going to get the job you applied for. That's hilarious. And that kind of started my career in health law out of happenstance because I got the job at the VA and they, uh, they gave me lots of interesting projects. I Defended VA hospitals, worked with doctors, read medical charts. Back That was way before EMR, where everything was handwritten. I became sort of a sloppy handwriting expert, no offense. Um, and it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. I liked the employment law aspect of it. I liked working with doctors. It started to feel like a fit. And I didn't go into law school thinking I would do that, but that's, that's the career I went into. So I've,
0: I've never stopped since then. And you know, fun fact about you—we uh, were just talking about how you were on The Apprentice. How did that come about? I was—that's another crazy story. So
1: I—I I love to cook and decorate, and I'm very, you know, into sort of the Martha Stewart lifestyle, if you will. And so Martha Stewart was doing this reality show, right, on The Apprentice, where Mark Burnett, the producer of The Apprentice and Survivor, offered to do her show. Um, in exchange for him allowing to host or be the producer of her daytime show. So she said, sure. So they had casting calls all over the country. I applied, I got on the show. There was, you know, 16 of us from, and I was this honky tonk, I guess, lawyer from Texas they thought was gonna be this shtick. And so um, went to New York, competed on the show, made it pretty far, super fun experience. And I think from that, I just thought, you know, We have to think big, like we have to just go do things that really drive us. And that shifted the course of my career in the sense that after I came home from filming that show, I left the VA, um, I pitched a job at a big clinic to be their, you know, the head of their patient relations department and their general counsel. I don't think I would have been bold enough to do that, but I thought I'm going to dream big and I did it. And it was, it was really a valuable career choice.
0: I love the evolution of it too, because I think so many people can relate to this too. Like you get out of school, you're like, I don't know, I just need a job. How about this one? And then all right. of a sudden you start thinking like, maybe I could do all kind of things. <laughs> I know, I love it.
1: You know, I give, I was telling you before the show, I speak to
0: residents all the
1: time. Um, it's like, you know, it's like my, my volunteer work, right? I just speak for rooms and rooms of residents. They kind of come, come in and listen to what I have to say. And then, and they leave with their head full of more confusion probably. But It's really interesting when I talk to residents, they've put their head down for so many years, right? Especially those that continue with the fellowship and they're just, they're so invested and all they want to do is just get out and get a job. They don't really, it's sometimes like, I don't even care. Just give me the job. I'll sign whatever you put in front of me and I'm done. And, you know, that's where I can really start talking to them about, have you really thought about what the next 10 years looks like for you or even what the next two years looks like? you know, have you thought about what's going to happen after you leave this job? Most of the time the answer is no. I, are you kidding? I just want to get my loans paid off. So it's really been fun for me to work with newer doctors that sort of come in with a head full of stars about what it's going to be like to be a physician. And then they get disenfranchised and they, I can sort of help them get the joy back, which to me is so rewarding. I mean, I was telling you before the show I mean, these are the healers of our country. It's not just about training. You know, it's not just about this education or the school, the fact you know the anatomy and you can do a differential diagnosis. You're healing people. And I take that really seriously because I want doctors that heal us to feel empowered, to not feel so lost, to not feel like the government's after them, not feel so overwhelmed by the complexity that is healthcare. I can't think of another industry that is as highly regulated, you know, and almost scary to work in than healthcare. Yeah. And you know, what other industry is like, oh, well, you you may inadvertently break the law and go to prison. Sorry, you know, be careful, watch your back, you know, you can make money, but not too much money. What's fair market value? I don't know. We won't really tell you. It's crazy. So that's where I come in. I try to help sort of normalize that and give empowering information so that doctors don't feel so lost.
0: Yeah, and I love how you explained how the law has evolved a little bit too how it initially was a little bit more of the medical malpractice and now it's a little bit more of the regulation take us through some of these you know what we i guess describe as like the boogeymen of you know some of these regulation things that we should be aware of
1: well let's let me unpack that a little because i think it is interesting this evolution when I started practicing law a long, long time ago, even though I look so young, um, it was really med mal that doctors were scared of, right? I'm going to miss something. There's gonna be a misdiagnosis. I'm gonna operate incorrectly. There's gonna be a problem. There's gonna be a peer review matter. And that was a big concern for physicians. After tort reform, after that, the world has changed. And now with insurance sort of taking care of a lot of those risks, it's not so much the forefront of a doctor's mind, like, oh, no, I'm going to go through peer review. It's shifted now to almost, wait a minute, there was one regulation, then two, and then 15, and then there's statutes that are now criminal, and there's more and more agencies that are regulating more things. And all of a sudden now to a physician, I mean, compliance and you know contract issues and employment law issues are more you know scary than what used to be just the peer review side. And so I find that that transformation really interesting. We're becoming very heavily regulated in medicine. And to where the government sometimes often does tell physicians what they believe is medically necessary, what they believe should happen with the patient, what you know, what drugs they believe are better. And it's really disheartening for physicians because they say, "What are you talking about? You know, I'm the one that's trained. You're a government bureaucrat sitting in Washington telling me how to treat my patients." And you can handle it different ways. I always try to tell physicians, you can fight the system, you can get angry and spend a lot of useless energy on that. Or you can try to educate yourself and try to find the joy, you know, sort of in the place we're at. You can't change right now the complete state of the world and how heavily regulated it is. You can try to educate yourself and live within it and find a place that makes you happy. And that's really what I, the sweet spot where I work with doctors is to say, we've got to find a place where you can find joy. We have to have the healers, you know, and you can't have healers that are burned out, fried, disenfranchised, scared. I mean, that's that's not a complete person that can treat another human being.
0: Yeah, And you were talking about that, about, you know, where the incentive is, is that, you know, if you could spend $1 in regulation and get $5 back, you know, that's not a system that's gonna go away anytime soon right? I
1: mean, this is how the government makes money, right? Mm -hmm. If you invested a dollar in email marketing, and you always consistently got five to $8 in return, then you would just pour more money into that marketing. plan. (laughs) And it's the same with the government. I mean, the more they spend investigating what they call fraud, which is a really broad word, uh, then they get money in their coffers, they're going to continue to hire bounty hunters to go after what they see as fraud. And I hate that word because it's so laced with it, you know, like committing fraud. no, you know, doctors don't go into medicine to go commit fraud, except a lot of things can be called fraud when they're really not. I mean, not intentionally is what I'm saying, but yet you're violating a statute. I have this doctor who is in the mental health space. She runs a wonderful clinic for underserved kids and provides lots of therapy services for children. I mean, you know, you can't get (laughs) much more altruistic than that, right? And she was... Uh, audited by Medicaid, and we all know how little Medicaid pays, right? And in some of the charts, they didn't they didn't note the start and stop times of the visit. They did have 30 minute sessions, and they noted the the scheduling system of you know when the visits were, but they didn't literally include the start and stop times in the record. Medicaid called that you know a false claim because it didn't have all the requirements of the note, and they ended up finding my client almost half a million dollars. Mm -hmm. And the total amount that they paid out was only like $5,000. But because of the weird way the government extrapolates fines and penalties, it sort of ratcheted this number way up. That is not okay. You know, it's not okay that you treat kids that don't have help. You pour your heart into this. And because you forget to check a box, you're having to go hire lawyers and fight the government on a half a million dollar fine. And so I, I started getting angry as well, I think on behalf of doctors and I started sort of considering this, my mission, you know, I've got to change the course. I know it's just one person, but one doctor at a time, I'm going to go in there and try to teach doctors and educate them on how to better stand up for themselves and how to better learn how to live within the system. Cause I don't want to see doctors that are treating our country, you know, that are, that end up withdrawing and quitting medicine because they don't want to do it anymore.
0: I completely agree. And, you know, I talked about this in a previous podcast episode um, with Dr. Nguyen about when it comes to like the misplaced hostility. So a lot of times we think that the the coders that, that ask us these requests and the administrators that ask us, is this outpatient or inpatient? You know, a lot of times we're like, why do they keep bothering me? But really, you know, they, um, I'm on the utilization committee, and if we don't choose this correctly, they can decide to not pay for the entire hospitalization. And this, you know, is on a bigger scale that we don't see as much now. Clearly, like the, some of the individual practitioners will, will see this just because of that. But I know that you know when it comes to writing the notes, there's the you know perfectionism of the note, but I think probably the coding part is the most challenging for me because if you code this wrong, like are they going to come back with you know all the work that you've done plus some? Um, is that's probably the most scary part of the whole visit.
1: You know, it is. And I have a lot of doctors that tell me, well, I outsource all that, you know, I don't, I mean, our, we have someone to do it and privacy and coding and billing. And I just come in and practice medicine. Here's the problem with sometimes with that is if you put all of your trust, you know, in a billing company, which is supposed to protect you or all your trust in an it vendor that's supposed to protect you from security and something goes wrong, it's your MPI number. It's your license. And so what happens is that company leaves and goes out of business or runs off into the sunset and you're left holding the bag as far as the doctor goes. And I I hate to see that. So sometimes I think you have to outsource as much as you can because you can't do it all, but you need to know the basics and spot check and verify and make sure that the people around you are protecting you well. Um, because again, you know, if you have a coding person that knows the rules really well and you trust them and you, you know, have audits and the audits come back as like, man, this coding and billing department is spot on. Then it almost gives you comfort to say, yeah, when they're asking me questions and telling me to do something, I know it has value. It doesn't make you angry. You think, thank goodness we have these people, you know, sort of helping us through this or we wouldn't make it, but it's, a lot of it is, is, in your own mind. You need to be able to understand and trust the people that are helping you because I've seen these things go wrong. I've seen billing companies completely mess up the, you know, entire, you know, section of billing for a medical group. And then when they're called to the table, they go, "Well, this two-page contract that we signed doesn't indemnify you and good luck." And then they just disappear. And the doctor is left re- recouping money to Medicare because everything was done incorrectly. So it's a big complicated world out there and i know because i'm very busy as a healthcare lawyer
0: (laughs) and i I, you know my
1: phone rings constantly and so i understand how hard it is i do want doctors to understand that it's like i've walked through the day of a life of a doctor so many times and i don't enjoy you know sitting in a law firm answering complicated regulatory questions or going through mergers and acquisitions I like talking to doctors, that's where my passion lies. It's like, how can we solve this problem for you? And how can we make you feel more empowered? So mm-hmm. I'm really passionate about that because it is very scary in the world of healthcare right now.
0: And, you know, let's go back and, and start from the beginning. So, you know, when you talk to these young doctors and these residents, you know, looking for a job, you know, what are the, um, where are the main things that they need to look for when they're starting to look for a job, you know, essentially contracting stuff?
1: So, yeah, I mean, obviously residents don't have always as much leverage as a seasoned physician that's been in practice 10 to 20 years with a book of patients. You know, negotiating is always about leverage. So you always have to find some leverage in whatever stage of medicine you're in. And when I talk to doctors, first of all, I say, look at the type of job you're getting into. Is this the culture that you want? I mean, think about things that are not legal related, just Is this, does this have a partnership track to it? Are you gonna be a widget? Are they treating you like a machine or are they treating you like a professional? Even in the interview process, you know, every stage you have to consider, is this a good fit for me long-term? And for some reason, even though doctors typically within the first five years of their practice change jobs, I don't know why it is, but a lot of doctors go in thinking, this is it for me. You know, I'm moving my family to this town and we're going to put our kids in private school. Like I'm going to root here. I'm never going to leave. And then they call me in three years, sort of like, uh-oh, I have to leave this job. You know, like, I know it happens. Like most people change jobs and yet you go into it thinking you'll never leave this job. I've heard, I've heard everything from, I didn't think I needed to negotiate the non-compete because I didn't think I would ever leave. Or I didn't realize that was even in there, How, I, you know. It all sounded so standard and you know, employers are famous for saying, oh, well, there's no changes to this contract. It's, it's all very standard and normal and there'll be nothing in here that you're gonna find objectionable, which is not true because otherwise it would not be in business. <laughs> so I tell doctors, you know, slow it down. Like don't get a contract docu signed, rush to you in an email and you just feel like you have to sign it or you're not gonna have a job. There are lots of doctor positions. You're gonna be okay. Take a moment. To slow it down and really understand what you're signing that's number one just first slow down number two you do need to understand it you need to understand the non-compete and what that binds you to is it reasonable in the marketplace for you to be bound in this particular way or in your state because every state has their own rules on non-competes you know what about when you leave not if you're going to leave but when you leave this job right walk through the scenarios with your spouse or with your friend or with your partner. Go have a beer and say, okay, let's say that some crisis happened and I have to walk away. What's going to happen? Do you have to pay a huge tail policy? Is there some liquidated damages provision? Can you not even get out within the first three years? Are you stuck? And so I don't think doctors do that enough. They don't walk through what happens when they leave because there's a lot of things that sort of I always like to think of it like a scorpion tail. It comes back and whacks you, you know, at the end. And it's like, you don't think about that. So I talk a lot about that. Find a backdoor. This applies not just to your first employment contract. It's going to apply to every contract you ever sign is how do you get out? Right. And, and I have seen management services agreements and leases and everything with no exit. And that is not, that's not acceptable. I mean, it always has to be a backdoor to every agreement. And so Those are the main things I try to just slow it down, understand what you're signing, make sure there's a back door and walk through what happens when you leave this job. If I can just get that, I will say one other thing with, especially with newer doctors, I don't see this as much with more experienced physicians. They don't really know their worth. They really don't. I mean, I don't, females are even worse than not asking for what they're worth, but for the most part, they say, I don't know, my buddy got This, I I think it's fair. I don't know. I mean, I don't really want to ask for a bonus. That seems greedy. I I guess just
0: whatever they pay me, you know, whatever they pay me. Yeah. Standard contract. That's exactly what it says. (laughs) Exactly. When you're thinking about like doing all those scenarios about leaving the job, I mean, I know that it's it can be so jarring because you don't want to think about like the stars in the eyes, and you don't want to ask about the standard contract, and you don't want to ask about leaving. And I think a lot of people are afraid to go there. But, you know, I tell people all the time, especially with coaching, I was like, we especially need to go there. We need to know where our mind is and where the problems are, because, you know, quite honestly, like, like nothing, it doesn't mean something bad is going to happen. It's going to mean you don't have to stress about it, what it does.
1: Right. And, you know, I was just talking to a physician the other day and I said, is this salary what you're really looking for? I mean, is this what you're happy with? If you're happy with it, we don't even negotiate it, but do you even know sort of what you, you know, what is your worth? What is the median salary? What's the MGMA number look like for your specialty in your area? They had no idea, no clue. And it's like, well, I guess it's this, you know, that's what they offered me. Typically it's like, whatever people tell you you're worth, you just go, I guess that's true. And I oftentimes tell doctors, you know, go to the hospital or the medical society in your local area, you know, go find this data and do your research and do your homework, you know, is $250,000 a year, you know, sort of market value or should it be two seventy five? dollars and you're just not asking for enough. Also, I always tell doctors, you know, look, you're doing them a huge service. They're making money on you. Trust me. It's not like they're, you know, it's not a mission field. You know, you're earning money for the practice and you're getting a percentage of it. So it's okay to walk in and say, I'd really like a sign-on bonus, uh, you know, five or $10,000 or maybe a relocation package. And you know, one conversation can mean 10 or $20,000 difference. And it doesn't have to come across all the time. I hear doctors, Oh, I don't want to ask for that. Or I don't want to make them angry. Right? Like you're like, you just have to cower and be like, I'll accept whatever you give me. And I don't know where that came from, but I do see it some more in women, but not always. Some men act the same way. Like I don't want to rock the boat. It's more of a personality thing, but you can be kind. You can be optimistic about a job. You can be professional and also ask for what you think you're worth. They're not mutually exclusive, you know? So I try to, I tell doctors that all the time, you can say, thank you very much for this opportunity. I wanna show you that I'm gonna be an asset to your practice. I wanna work really hard for you. I wanna make it a uh, life here, but I do need to make this money that is an average salary in
0: my specialty. Like, that's not an overreaching. Yeah. And- I know when I um, came in the area, the MGMA data, you can sort of find it. I, I had a vague idea about what it was, but it was interesting. I could tell what the MGMA data was because I had two job offers and their starting salary was the exact same. So I figured they were all pulling from that. Um, and, you know, having multiple job offers or, you know, seeking that is is wise to do it. You know, it's like not putting all your eggs in one basket is going to give you a tremendous amount of negotiating power too.
1: Oh, it does. And also the contracts are markedly different often. I'll get a doctor that'll come to me and say, okay, here's three different contracts. I'm like, well, this one is totally terrible and you should never sign it with a 10 foot pole. And this one is amazing. And it's like (laughs) polar opposite. You know, one has a non-compete of 50 miles in two years for every practice location they have. And this one is two miles away from the one place you work. You know, I mean, just, it's amazing the, the discrepancy between contracts and all of the, you know, my clients say, is this standard? I'm like, well, Is it standard for you in this market? You know, I mean, there's, what is standard? I see everything all across the board. What I want to know is, does this fit with your life? Are you going to be able to leave this job? You know, does the salary work for you and your family? Do you feel, you know, empowered in this, in, in this role? I mean, a lot of times it's not just about the money, but, you know, you want to go in negotiating half a day off so you can do your charting and not feel overwhelmed, or you want to go in negotiating certain things that you know you're going to need. And that's really important. Um, You have to present it in the way that doesn't come across as, like, I really wanna snowboard on Fridays. (laughs) No, you wanna come in like, I really wanna set myself up for success here. Um, Also, finding things that you really enjoy, like leading a team or being on the, you know, sort of a certain committee that really fills you up, is really important because then doctors find a lot of joy and value in their job rather than just money. Money is not a good motivator. Right
0: especially because you can find that anywhere. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) No, I think that your uh, point before we start recording was probably the most helpful is, you know, not underestimating this uh, contract experience because this is the strongest negotiation position you're ever gonna be in. You know, before you leave, before you move there, before you start whatever job that you're gonna do. And also when you leave, I think a lot of people are realizing that you have to think of all those things. You know, you absolutely have
1: to think about your leverage before you sign the contract. You lose all leverage the minute the ink dries on your signature. And that being said, that doesn't mean I don't get calls from doctors every day saying, "Uh uh-oh, well, I didn't know you existed uh, two years ago when I signed this, you know, and I just signed it because I didn't think I had a choice. Now I'm stuck in a bad job with bad partners, a terrible contract, and I have no way out. And I go, okay, well, let's roll up our sleeves and let's figure out how to get you some leverage. Yeah. And there's there's sometimes ways to find it. You just have to mine it from the earth, you know? And that might mean, <clears throat> you know, okay, if you have a legitimate workplace concern, you know, or a possible whistleblower, a possible fraud issue, you know, do you want to bring that up to give yourself some leverage before you quit? you don't want to quit. And then, you know, sort of it's moved because you never told anyone about it. Or, you know, do you have leverage in the sense that you like doing something in that job that nobody else likes? I was explaining to you, there was a doctor that was quitting a job and she said, well, I want out of my non-compete and I want this and I want this. And I said, why why do you think they would give that to you? You know, they have no incentive. The minute you put in your notice, it's like you're dead to a practice. You know, it's like, well, you're out of here. We don't have to give you anything. We don't want to pay you any bonuses. Don't take your leave. I mean, it's just, you lose every ounce of leverage. So think about it from their perspective. Always when you're negotiating, think about it from the other side's perspective. What can you give them that's valuable? Can you take their call for them? You know, can you work extra shifts for them? Can you give, what, what if they're in a crunch and if you left, they would lose millions because they don't have another doctor to replace you. Maybe you offer to work two or three months longer in exchange for, you know, a reduction of your non-compete or whatever the situation is that you're looking for, but you have to give something in exchange. And so sometimes that means we got to dig up some leverage and think of something that you can do to give them an, in return. And that's not the greatest position to be in, but it's better than nothing. You can't just go to them and say, "Give me this," you know, because they have,
0: they just won't. That's the way it works. Yeah, I, I think that's such a great strategy. Is that you know how do you mind the leverage when you think you don't have it? I think that, you know, thinking outside the box, there's so much that we could offer. And, you know, it starts too with with knowing what our worth is and what we have to offer and understanding what, what their situation is too, I think was really helpful. Let's say you're on the job and, you know, you feel like things are, uh, you're not you know, not exactly sure anything is really wrong, but not getting a great vibe. And then all of a sudden you get hit with this PIP, this performance improvement plan. Now I've coached up a couple of people on this and I have my own theories, but tell me what are your thoughts on these performance improvement plans?
1: So I know the title is performance improvement and that that's the goal, but I can tell you from my experience, it's sort of like a road to fire you. So you need to be really, once you get to the point where you're, they're issuing a performance improvement plan, then you need to really dig deep and think, what's the next phase of my life gonna look like? Because it is hard to come back from a pip often. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but you know, it's one of those legal fictions that we're really here to help you improve your performance. It's really, we're here to document in your employment records so we can fire you and not get sued. And so, I mean, a lot of times when I hear from a doctor that it's to the point you're on a pip and it's not going well, then I think we need to set you up uh, to put you on top of this situation, to put you on top of this problem. So you're not reacting to a bunch of negative things because in any other profession, you can quit, tr- you can get fired from a job and it sucks and you might you know, cry in your beer, but you're gonna get over it and you're gonna get another job and you move on with your life and you just look back at that as a really bad mo- you know, moment in history. But in the world of healthcare, right, doctors have to fill out credentialing applications with every future job. So you never want to say I was terminated or I was fired because that's this big red flag that follows you around for the rest of your career. And so if you're in a PIP and things aren't going well, then you need to strategize. Do I need to take the first move and, you know, go look for another job and put in my notice and make sure that they know that, you know, I am not going to be, you know, an issue for the for you and that you're not going to have to fire me because once doctors put in their notice period, usually it's like, okay, leave them alone, they're moving on. We don't have to, nobody wants to go through the red tape of firing a doctor anyway. And I'm not saying you always throw in the towel, but sometimes I've actually had to talk to doctors about what is it in the pip that's really the problem? You know, because doctors are very clinical and they're very data driven. And so when they see, you know, you had two cases they're going, well, this other person had four and mine weren't that bad. And I need to go in and defend myself and explain why these, I did everything right. And I oftentimes say, it's not about the case, you know, Mm -hmm. it's an interpersonal conflict or your culture is shifting, you know, in a bad way and you're not communicating well with them. And it's not about any of your clinical care. And that's really difficult for doctors to hear. You know, is you may just not click with your team and you need to figure out a different
0: scenario that fits better with you. And I always um, encourage someone to consider coaching at this point because I have coached a couple of people through this. And because mm-hmm. it usually is an interpersonal uh, conflict, because two of the people that I've worked with have have looked at some, you know, being surgeons and all, like, well, my complication rate is actually better than some other people. And, and they start to catch on to the fact that there's something else underlying this. And not only understanding what it is, it's understanding how we contribute to this, how we can protect ourselves against it so we don't take it with us to the next job. And not just whatever led to this in the first place, which may not be our fault, but there's certainly, we react to other people as well. Um, Mm -hmm. But understanding how we got to this place, we don't take it with us, but also not letting the shame of it go with you. Because I mean, it's hard to go and feel like you're doing a great job. And we have such difficult jobs that we will step back and and every now and then we're so hard on ourselves. Now you have someone else coming along and saying, oh yeah, you know, we think that you're also terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> right, I
1: know. I have a lot of things for that, and I've worked with a lot of doctors, also, you know, through near misses, almost firings. You know, where and you you get them through it. And you're right. I had a great doctor um, in Dallas, Texas, that who almost got fired, and we saved that. You know, really quickly. I just swoop in, and, and she wrote an email. You know, I kind of coached her through it. A lot of what I do with doctors is not so much. This is what the regulation says. This is how to get you out of this lawsuit. It's just coaching them through, like helping them through these difficult scenarios and educating them because I've seen it from the other side, right? I've worked so long in healthcare that I know what the administrators are thinking. And I sort of know what the group is thinking and you have to think like they think. And so, you know, if you send a letter back, that's, you know, defensive and clinical and, you know, argumentative, you're just digging your own grave. And so a lot of times it's like to try to say, I understand where you're coming from. I am going to voluntarily take this course on communication. I really appreciate you bringing this to my attention. It might seem like you're giving in, but maybe what you're doing is buying time so that you can go interview for other jobs and put in your notice and feel like you can walk away with your head held high. And that is big because you want to start your next job feeling like I'm worth it. I am talented. That wasn't a good style for me and a fit for me, but this new group is going to be a
0: lot better. And that doesn't ruin your life. Right. And so speaking of those, I know that you mentioned before we started recording, there's several things, you know, a couple of different things you should consider when, when on these things, things that'll carry through to other jobs. What are the the red flags that you need to worry about, the things that may actually hurt you in the future that you need to start protecting yourself against?
1: Yes. Like any time that your employer in any context tries to limit your practice or proctor you or, you know, sort of hamper your ability under the licensing board, that can be a trigger for a national practitioner data bank reporting. So really be cautious if they say, well, we don't think you can practice independently. Those are all red flags. You need to stop and say, I need to speak to someone immediately you know, and work that issue out because I don't want to feel that I have to go to my licensing board and have a problem. I mean, anything like that, you obviously need to pay attention to, to me, dealing with these things early is best. Doctors sometimes just try to bury their head in, in this, you know, sand and pretend like nothing is going wrong until it is a crash and burn situation. And this happens not just in their own careers, but also like when an employment law issue, if you're in a small practice and there's an issue that's festering and you just think, well, I don't want to deal with it. It'll just work itself out. And it doesn't. It gets worse and worse. And all of a sudden it's too late to repair it. And you have a big problem you have to unwind so dealing with things early not just in your own you know professional career but in your practice or even just an inkling of a compliance concern you don't want to nip that in the bud and go at it really quickly that's really the best approach
0: when should someone get a lawyer
1: oh that is a good question um this makes me sad okay first of all you know i make my living as a lawyer so obviously i want everybody to call me all the time but it makes me sad that doctors feel that they have to call their lawyer for all kinds of things. They just don't know where to turn. You know, they they don't know, is, is this contract okay? You know, is this arrangement okay with this lab vendor? Can I have someone sitting in my space? What do I do with this HIPAA concern? This person died and now I don't know if I can give their wife the records. Can they just come in and say they're the wife and I just turn the records over? Like there's so many questions on a daily basis that are complicated in healthcare. And I don't wanna have to go form an independent relationship with every doctor. And they pay me gobs of money per hour for me to answer these questions, right? There should be somewhere for them to go (laughs) to sort of be generally educated on these things. And I realized about six to eight months ago that I'm not really serving the world. Well, I mean, I'm making money, but I'm not really helping a lot of people. I'm just helping the clients that happen to find me and call me and hire me and then they feel really protected and safe, but you know it's not spreading. And so I really am trying to find a way um, with a new company that I know we've talked about, which I'm so excited about, mm. to share more information with doctors. How do you know when to hire a lawyer? Usually it's when something terrible happens. I mean, I'm just going to be honest. That's when usually people call lawyers. I got sued. I have a medical board complaint. I am have an audit. You know, I'm having... A heart attack right now because i don't know what to do and then they have to go find a lawyer and then when they do they say what just call 1-800-lawyers like what lawyer there's many lawyers and some of them are shysters and some of them are good and some of them know a lot of healthcare and some of them are 750 dollars an hour like what so it's very overwhelming i'm very sorry that it's so hard and that there's so many different niches of of lawyers but i want doctors to try to educate themselves to some extent before they feel like they have to go hire a lawyer. You know, there should be a way for doctors to know the basics before they have to call someone and pay an hourly fee and
0: get advice. And, you know, that leads to your program that's coming up this, you know, guard my practice because we were talking you, could find all this information, you know, it's, it's like a lot of things. It's like coaching. You could do self-help all you want and all these other things, you know, programs that you're about to describe for us, save us time and save us effort. And, you know, when you realize your worth and what you have to offer, then you know you have a limited amount of time to get information. And I think, you know, having sampled some of your videos already, like what you have to offer is really tremendous for all physicians to really, you know, learn this lesson that we weren't taught in residency. And so take us a little bit through this new business that you've started, this guard my practice, and you know, what can they expect out of it? Well, thanks for teeing that up. I really appreciate it. And all the doctors listening
1: out there, I love you guys. Um, So basically it's my legal brain, Um, 21 years of practicing only healthcare. And I realized I really enjoy training doctors. I really enjoy it. Like it's a passion of mine. You can see it when I give speeches. I never want them to end. There's a line a mile long after the talk. I just, I'll never stop, you know, answering questions to doctors because I really, truly feel it's really important to empower our doctors to practice medicine well, they have to feel safe. It's just like, you know, you can't live in a war zone and be good at anything. You're just constantly worried about keeping your family safe. And so you, unless you feel safe and secure and you can relax, then you can't be good at whatever you do for a profession. So one of the things I thought of is how, how can I, you know, sort of help doctors feel like they have some armor around them, that they feel protected and that they feel more knowledgeable and that they can take a deep breath because it had gotten to such a fever pitch. I think it was around January, about Christmas, January, where I felt like every doctor was coming to me with such crisis. And they were feeling like, I, I can't continue. I, I cannot go on this way, I'm so overwhelmed. And I thought, there's, we've got to shift. We've got to shift this model. They can't just keep coming to me and I fix this crisis and that crisis. And, you know, I've got to teach in advance and help this from getting to that point. And that's why it's almost out of necessity That guard my practice was born because I thought we've got to go back to the basics, I really want the boogeyman of medicare regulations and government auditors and you know HIPAA and this and that and all the things and you know and money and people trying to come after you. I want you to put that at bay and enjoy practicing medicine again, and so I decided to create these 15 minute videos and yes, it qualifies for CME. But honestly, you know CME is, is an added bonus. I'm thrilled that I can offer CME through these videos, but there's a ton of CME out there. There's a ton of training out there and there's a consultant every street corner that you can hire. But what I'm trying to do is consolidate the things that I have found over 20 years that have caused doctors' problems. you know how to negotiate your contracts, how to form a compliance plan that actually works you know, how to deal with, you know, mergers and acquisitions and all the complicated moving parts of corporate healthcare without getting yourself inadvertently in really hot water. Also how to deal with employees. Like we are, you know, I don't care if you're in the healthcare space or if you run a coffee shop or if you're a target, I mean, we are all humans and we all work together and there's going to be people that are unreasonable and people that file bad reviews <laughs> And you know, people might call your bagels total trash, even though you love your bagels. I mean, there's going to be people that you don't get along with. This is called humans. And so, you know, employee issues happen in the medical space, just like they happen anywhere else. And so I want to demystify that. Like, It's okay if you have an angry patient. It's also okay if you have to terminate a patient once in your career, it's probably going to happen right? It's okay if you get a demand letter from a lawyer for something that you don't think you need to be receiving. It's just part of business. And so just demystifying a lot of these things for doctors, like these are the things I commonly see run across my desk that cause strain for physicians and here is how to try to prevent them. To me, I can't imagine a more offering that touches more doctors than that. Just a basic year-long training course on you know, the problems that I see on a daily basis and how to armor yourself. Do you feel a little bit safer? You're never going to be a lawyer, right? You're never going to understand the complexity of healthcare regulations. Like I probably can also, I'm not going to be operating on anyone's leg, right? I'm not going to be a doctor. We have to mutually find a space where we occupy. And there are still times you're going to need to hire a lawyer, right? This isn't like a substitute for legal counsel. It's really just getting you to the point where you can issue spot better. Getting you to the point, like, for example, when I give a speech and a doctor comes after me and they go, I didn't know that I couldn't share these expenses with the doctor than which I refer. Like, I just thought we were being friendly. We work in the same town. He sits in my space. I have an extra office. We refer back and forth to each other all the time. I didn't know that was an anti-kickback problem, you know, and just issue spotting is half the battle. I mean, that's really what you want in any medical group when you have a compliance plan is just spotting things that you go, is that right? You know, can, we should probably look into that. And just that one bit of curiosity can save you, can stop the bleeding on a problem you didn't even know was bleeding. That could have been bled for years and, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines and penalties just because you didn't even know there was a problem. So that's kind of my job is to go find all the little bleeders and say, wait, look into that. Wait, let's think this
0: through. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes, there's there's actually an uh, American College of Surgeons program called Stop the Bleed. I was like, this sounds like it too. <laughs> Perfect. Stop the bleed.
1: Yes. Everybody needs a lawyer in their back pocket. Like I used to call myself the red phone, you know, just call me when, you know, there's any crisis, but everybody needs like a pocket lawyer where they can just go, uh, I'm not sure. Is this okay? Okay, good. Click, you know, but I can't do that to everybody. So this is my effort to try to share the wealth.
0: Yes. And, you know, I didn't realize this as well, but, uh, you know, lawyers are constrained by, just like physicians are, you're licensed in certain states. So I know that someone in Texas can find you, but I think the rest of us are just going to have to rely on the guard, guard my practice.
1: Right. I know. I got a call from a doctor in uh, Arizona. She had heard me give a speech and she said, you know, you're the. I want you. I, I just. You need to look at all of my stuff. And I said, I'm just licensed in Texas. You know, she said, I don't care. I said, Well, I know, but I like literally can't help you because I'm not licensed there. And it, it makes me sad that I cannot go out and reach every doctor. But a lot of times I'll just sit there and I'll take calls. I'll prop my feet up in the middle of the day. I consider it relaxing in a strange, sick sort of way, just to give doctors advice. And so I do get lots of phone calls from doctors, and sometimes I just answer. I just give them my free. You know, I'm not giving you legal advice, but I'm trying to really help you out through this. And I try to search around and figure out a lawyer in their state or, you know, try to give them some direction. It's very overwhelming to work in healthcare. It just is. I don't care with whether you're on the revenue cycle side or whether you're a treating physician or whether you're a nurse practitioner. It's so overwhelming because there's just so many moving parts. You know, I mean, do you have a supervisory agreement? Do you have this contract? Are you negotiating well? What about your payer contracts? You feel like you're always getting screwed. And so I want there to be some more empowerment, you know, yes, standing up for who you are and what you're worth. Also running a practice that you're proud of, you know, to say, yeah, we're, we're doing our best and we're really doing well, you know, we're making money, but we're also compliant and we care and we've got a good checks and balances where if something goes wrong, we know we're going to catch it. I mean, to me, that makes me feel good when my clients have a strong program and they can issue that so well that by the time they call me, you know, there's very little damage that's been done because they can already spot a problem that's coming on the horizon, which is really the goal. And then they can actually dig in and go be the best doctor. And that's my goal is for all the doctors just to really love what they do again, because what I'm finding is a lot of burned out, jaded physicians. So that's I want to be a joy spreader. The doctors i want to give them information and insight and yes it's because i've been practicing healthcare for 20 years health law but also i really find it motivating and inspiring to work with doctors i just you know i have other lawyers friends of mine then they say i hate working with doctors they're like the worst clients <laughs> and I go, they're my whole life so i don't find that the case i find doctors to be fantastic to work with because everybody knows their lane you know, I mean, doctors are really great and highly trained and, you know, operating and treating allergies and dealing with children and all the various areas, but I can walk alongside them. I don't feel like I'm telling them what to do or telling you what to do, but I can help, you know, I can be that pocket resource where I can say, let me help you get through your days. And one of the things I was telling you before we started recording was early in my career, um, I was hired as a patient relations director in a big medical group which I was also their lawyer, but, and I did all their CME. So I don't know how I had these dual hats on and survived those five or six years, but, but the patients that were really angry, like that went to the manager of the clinic and couldn't get their problem resolved. Anyway, they ended up in my voicemail. And so I dealt with these really angry people and it was really eye opening, really to see, you know, how to deal with the patient that's just been so Angered by the process and the system. A lot of times it's even misdirected rage, you know, at a delay or their kid's sickness or they couldn't get a lab. And it's really trying to figure out how can I hear them? How can I make them feel heard and, you know, also resolve their problem and to use that as a training experience. And it was really insightful for me to hear the patient's perspective and then walk along with the doctor, you know, during their day and see, you know, how, why their patient satisfaction scores were low. I mean, what are you doing to, you know, really piss off a patient? And so that was fascinating. I, I loved working with doctors in the trenches every 15 minutes. Like I get your life. You know, I understand that, you know, you just want to slap a coat on there. It's like, that's a 99214. I'm done. I got to call my kid's school. I haven't eaten all morning. I mean, I'm dealing with really unhappy sick people. I always have to be on, you know, it's, it's not fair to a doctor to have to be a perfect representation of the kind-hearted, sweet, empathetic person. They're also human beings with stresses, with families, with pressures, with hunger, with life. And so that's almost an unrealistic standard. And just to feel a little bit more relaxed in some of the other areas that give them grief means they have more bandwidth right, to be there for their patients, because it's an exhausting career you know, to, yeah. to be on every 15 minutes or 30 minutes of their whole day. It's like, wow, it, I don't really think people understand that.
0: Yeah, and you know, what we need are just people like you um, to help us out and those things that we don't need to know to, to not make it seem so, you know, foreign and overwhelming and the boogeyman type stuff. And, you know, mm-hmm. th- that really does help um, to, to make our jobs a little bit easier
1: that's my goal, right? I just want to make physician's job easier. So if you 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 know, if you want to, for example, look at a free video that I'm coming up with, you can go to my website, guardmypractice.com, and you can download a free video on contract negotiations. I'm giving you all of my insight. I have nothing to hold back. At this point, I could retire and I don't want to just keep my brain in a box. I want to put it out there for everyone. So all the things I've learned over 20 years of being a healthcare lawyer, I want to teach. And so one of them is just contract negotiation, right? What is the style that is most successful for me over all of these years? So you can download a free video. You can sign up. It's a subscription-based service. You can get videos every week in your inbox and see my smiling face talking about everything from compliance to contracts to employees to patients. Um, but it's it's been really enjoyable. It's been really creative, which is using my creative side, which I really love. I got a little tired of just editing contracts all day because I didn't think that was really using my skill set to the best of my ability. So I feel like this is it. This is what you're getting, people. You're getting me every week teaching you something.
0: You know, I think that you're following the natural career progression of a lot of us of, you know, initially like whatever job I can get and then really, and all these different things, like maybe there's more. And now, you know, kind of you're following along the path that a lot of us are, which is... There's I can actually do more than what I'm at, you know, I have more purpose than what I'm thinking. And I can actually give back all these and instead of doing the one-to-one, do one to many. And really, you know, extend the reach um, and you know what your mission and purpose in life are. And so, we really appreciate you coming on and talking about this. And and I'm happy to you know swing people to the the Guard my practice because I, I have seen some of your videos and they're fantastic. They're entertaining. They're easy. They're um they're short. They're informative. It leaves you like, okay, now I want to know more about all this. You know, it, it's
1: oh, really- thank you. I yeah. really appreciate that. I I want to leave little pearls of wisdom to where you can. know so be a little bit more educated than the next person so it makes you feel a little bit stronger when you're going into the next hard thing because there's always hard things in healthcare right there's always a new challenge and you know you can't learn them all but we can do enough to feel you know that we're safe and that there is a future that's bright i don't want doctors to feel disenchanted with medicine you know this career is hard but it's worthwhile and i have a lot of happy clients because they do find that joy and Sometimes it's tweaking your job and taking less money and doing something else that you really feel like you're passionate about or leading something or, you know, doing something outside of what the norm is. And, you know, let's all figure that out. Right. Try to find the best fit for all of us. And so if I can just aid, you know, a handful of doctors to feel more empowered in their career, then I think it's a win.
0: Well, I'm sure you're going to help more than a handful. And we appreciate it. (laughs) That's the goal, right? I mean, my
1: whole savings is invested in this. So, like, let's hope this works. (laughs) But it's a labor of love. I mean, it's truly a passion project. I went into this whole hog. Like, I'm going to teach doctors everything I know. And I am not looking back. There's just no dust collected. You know, it's just like, we're going forward. So, I'm excited about it.
0: Oh, perfect. Well, Amanda Hill, thank you so much for joining me today. And, you know, I'll definitely post the links for Guard My Practice in there too. And we look forward to hearing a lot more from you. I look forward to it. I can't wait to talk again. For more information on the BOSS Business of Surgery series, go to bossurgery.com.